In this special review edition of The Late Edition, Monocle's editors and correspondents look back at 2020 at some of the news stories you may have missed during the past 12 months. We'll delve into the political friendship between outgoing US President Donald Trump and his Brazilian counterpart, Jair Bolsonaro. Taiwan's soft power blossomed in 2020. We'll assess why. And we'll review some of the brighter news stories from the worlds of books and magazines all ahead here on this special edition of The Late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to this special edition of the Late Edition here on Monocle 24 on this Christmas Day. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and joining us in full festive cheer, I hope, from Midori House in London are Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Paige Reynolds. Paige, Fernando, Merry Christmas to you both. Merry Christmas, Thomas. Feliz Natal. Merry Christmas, Thomas, from across the Atlantic. (laughs) And an adolig llawen to you both too, just to speak in my mother tongue there, Welsh. Um, let's sort of set this programme out a little bit for our, for our listeners, shall we? I like to think of it, Paige and Fernando, as a bit of a sort of secret Santa of news that we set up for each other. That I asked you both to sort of dip your hands into this figurative hat of news for this Christmas day and to pick out your stories for the year. Paige, let's start with you. How tricky a task was that, given just how enormous a news year 2020 has been for all of us? Well, it wasn't easy. And I think when we first started to try and exchange some ideas, that became uh, a little bit apparent. I think it's been such a big year for news, but it's also been a year where it's sort of been the same story all of the time. So you kind of you get lost in what month actually anything really happened. But um, I think we dug back in the treasure troves of Monocle 24 and we've got a few a few good pieces coming up. Well, absolutely. I mean, and thankfully, we always have culture you know we always have you know good music good films good tv and and thankfully we had a little bit of that uh during lockdown and Thomas, it was nice i mean because the world was in such a state i remember back in march everybody was so anxious it was very difficult times but then throughout the months we got kind of snippets of kind of good news here and there you know a country that was doing very well in the in the way they're handling covid or perhaps not a country but a city or or a particular leader uh so yeah we we tried to look at the brighter side of things. Well, Fernando, as we dip our hands into the secret Santa hat of news stories gone by this year for this special edition of the Late Edition, it was you who put your hand in first. And we'll begin with a political friendship that blossomed, it seemed, this year between two presidents, US President Donald Trump and Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro. Fernando, we've discussed on several occasions here on the Late Edition over the past year the nuances of this apparent political friendship. Just start us off, if you could, with how deep in your mind this relationship has run this year. And do you think that Donald Trump's defeat in November's presidential election potentially marks the beginning of a of a long goodbye of sorts, of the, both the, the relationship in its way, but also of the, the populism specific as it is to each country here? But that became sort of shorthand for what both Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro stood for. Well, first of all, the relationship of both it is very close and i'm not and i don't mean it 
commercially or financially for both countries. It's just that they are both very similar, the way they think, you know, the way they speak. Uh, and of course, Jair Bolsonaro, you know, was delighted to have such a partner such as Trump. And that's why, Thomas, do you remember, uh, I think one day they were in a in a meeting, I forgot exactly where it was, and I think Bolsonaro kind of slipped, I love you. <laughs> I think it was kind of an accident, but it's true. I mean, I, 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 and I can feel that. And in fact, Brazil, we still, it's Christmas Day, we still didn't congratulate Joe Biden. I mean, we are completely isolated on that topic because I think uh, probably Bolsonaro think he's going to be uh, kind of cheating with Trump, if I may say, on these forms. But yeah, at the same time, Thomas, sure, a very good friendship between both leaders, but a very bad year for both of them. For Trump, of course, he lost the election. You know, there's nothing worse than that. But for Bolsonaro as well, he's a, he's a much weaker president now. At the beginning of the year, you know, apparently, even at the beginning of the pandemic, Brazilians were not blaming him directly. But now, after the local elections, after so many deaths and so many kind of sad news actually in the country, most of the candidates supported by Bolsonaro lost. Uh, and, and there's a lot of kind of poli uh, political parties kind of rearranging themselves for 2022. And it's going to be very difficult for him uh, to be reelected. So if I may say, Thomas, perhaps the end of populism in the Americas or not the end, the beginning of the end. Well, in the days following Election Day in the United States, we spoke to the Professor of American Literature at the University of London in the UK, Sarah Churchwell, who had this characterization of Donald Trump's potency to those who voted for him. And I just wanted us to hear it again to see, Fernando, how much of it informs the dynamics, perhaps, of the relationship you just outlined for us there between Bolsonaro and Trump. Let's hear it. Somebody described him as the id of the United States, and he really kind of is the id of the United States, you know, that this kind of a radical individualism and this libertarian strain that runs through a lot of the country and, and is embedded in a lot of our notions about patriotism and some of our oldest myths. And then what is effectively a lot of chest beating, the deep masculinity of our notions of individualism, masculinism, I mean, and the patriarchy of it and the militarization of it. So, you know, the way in which the Second Amendment has become weaponized, literally and figuratively, and turned into this defense of militia and people just, you know, using guns to enforce their personal <laughs> desires and opinions. All of that has been there for a long time, but it wasn't legitimized. Sarah Churchwell there, speaking to us here on Monocle 24, shortly after Election Day in the United States. Fernando, listening to Sarah's characterization of what Donald Trump churned up among those people who, who voted for him in the United States, do you think that's a set of characteristics that can be applied to Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil too? Yes, if Sarah was talking about Bolsonaro, it's, it's identical. Uh, individual, individualism, patriotism, militarism, guns, you know, they're very similar. It's so interesting. I always say the only difference between them is that in the US, I mean, Trump, you know, he belongs to the Republican Party, which is, you know, a huge party. And Bolsonaro at the moment doesn't have a political party because Brazil, we have actually more than 30 political parties. Our political system is completely different. But in terms of character, oh my God, extremely similar. And Paige, just to bring you in here for a final thought on this, Fernando a little earlier characterised the end of this year as almost the beginning of the end, a long goodbye of sorts, the kind of populism uh, that Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro represent for so many people in their respective corners of the world. What struck me about this year is that 
you know, there's been plenty of bad news uh, justifiably reported in many corners of the world throughout this year. But there have also been some really bright and heartening stories of how people's altruism has really shone through in many occasions through a challenging time. I think it's interesting when you contrast that with sort of political tribalism as well, which has also been on full display. I mean, if you look at Donald Trump's um, performance in the election, you know, nearly more than 70 million people did vote for him, which makes him the second most voted for candidate, I believe, in the history of presidential elections in the US. I just wondered if you had an idea of how we reconcile those things. The idea that a challenging year has brought many of us perhaps closer together than we were before, but has also made many others of us sort of more entrenched perhaps in our beliefs and in our corners of whatever spectrum politically or otherwise that we feel that we're a member of in whatever corner of the world we are i think yes we've been brought together by this pandemic but i also think the political divisions run a lot deeper than that and they they go back a long way they're very historic and i think that we really need we need leadership actually i think at the moment we need people um not like donald trump hopefully a president like biden who is able to see that uh kind of facilitating conversations um instead of sort of heated arguments um is something that we really need to focus on and whether that's through institutions whether that's top down whether that's kind of going into communities there's got to be some kind of push to get us back into a realm where we can have discourse that that, that makes sense and that's kind of uh, constructive and, and not destructive. Well, next here on this special review edition of the late edition, let's turn our attention to Taiwan. In May, Taiwan's foreign minister spoke to us about how Taiwan's semi-autonomous government was charting its course through the waters of its relationship with Beijing. Here is Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu, who spoke to us a little earlier this year. We try to do things out of our goodwill to other countries or to individuals who are being persecuted or who are being damaged by the coronavirus outbreak. We think it is the right thing for Taiwan to be able to do that. We are not doing it because of China. If you look at the American officials' description of Taiwan, they describe Taiwan as a democratic success story, a reliable partner, and a force for good in the world. And we think that we deserve that kind of description because our democracy is very successful. And we want to share Taiwan's experience of democratization with other countries. And we want to support those people who are fighting for their own freedom or fighting for democracy. Joseph Wu, Taiwan's foreign minister there, speaking to Monocle a little earlier this year. Paige, Taiwan's fortunes this year was a story that you have been tracking for us and caught your eye through many stages this year from Monocle's newsroom in London. What struck you most listening to Joseph Wu there about what Taiwan's done during this past year that other governments perhaps could, could do well in taking note of as we look to the beginning of a new year? I think what what's happened in in Taiwan is that they've moved very quickly, very effectively, and they've also moved in a very transparent way and in a way where they're sort of uh, they're, the clarity in their decision making, but also in in a very much a public facing way, um, has really 
improve the situation. And I think there's been so much trust in the government. Um, and I think that's what we've, you know, really been lacking in Europe a lot of the time, um, particularly uh, what they've done in the kind of sphere of disinformation has been really interesting. Um, their digital minister, uh, Audrey Tang, um, has had this push where she's uh, called it humour over rumour. So whenever some kind of uh, disinformation would appear on social media, what the uh, government would do through their kind of digital ministries, which are really, really strong in Taiwan, that's important to know, um, is that they would counteract that with some kind of meme or some kind of uh, government-designed uh, information campaign that was quite humorous, which kind of left people thinking about that a lot more than they were thinking about the sort of more nefarious content that was being pushed by who, who knows who. And I think, you know, uh, they've had a lot of experience as a kind of victim of disinformation due to, you know, their proximity to China and their sort of uh, quite tense relationship with China. And they had a couple of interesting initiatives. So they have, um, they have national health smart cards in Taiwan, which kind of collect data on your health and they also have kind of a history of your prescription and what they used these cards for was to ration mask buying so they didn't have people stockpiling again that was a problem across Europe other parts of the world because this card knew exactly how many masks you had your household had um, and they also enabled people to do mask sharing so if you had like already a, a large quantity of masks you were able to maybe share those with other people in the community um, they also used financial incentives quite well um, in terms of their quarantine, um, you were rewarded with £27 a day when you were in quarantine after kind of being on a flight or having to self-quarantine. Um, and you were fined almost a thousand times that if you broke that. Um, so I think there are lots of kind of smart uh, things that Taiwan did. They also had, um, in order to deliver their information, which I think is, is something I can't forget to mention, um, they had a, uh, a cartoon Shiba Inu called Zongchai who um, delivered all of the information on kind of mask uh, wearing and, and hand washing. And again, I think using something that's quite friendly, um, using something that's memorable, that's going to start a conversation, that was really clever in terms of, of government communication. So a lot to learn, I think, from Taiwan. And Fernando, I think that character that Paige closed on there also caught your eye among perhaps Taiwan's maybe softer exports this year. It's been quite a rich year for its cultural treats. Among them are this track we're going to hear a little bit of now, I believe. Let's hear it. One, one there. Fernando, that ditty, I believe, made it into one of your storied global countdowns on the briefing here on Monocle 24 this year. Tell us, well, first about that track, but also a little more perhaps about what other cultural treats from Taiwan that caught your eye this year. Well, I absolutely love this track. It's uh, 911. And, and, you know, they, they, they identify themselves as a hip hop group. I mean, Perhaps that's my kind of hip-hop in a way. But there's a lot of touches of Eurodance to it as well. And the Taiwanese charts was a delight. But Thomas was not only music, actually. I was very impressed about their, you know, their film outtake as well. Uh, one of the biggest hits at the Taiwanese box office. And, you know, they are actually doing well at the box office at the moment because, you know, they did so well with COVID that their cinemas are now open, you know, unlike uh, a couple of other countries. There's a film in particular that broke records at the box office and it was the first kind of 
LGBT blockbuster as well. Uh, the film is called Your Name Engraved Herein. A- and it's interesting that, again, Taiwan is one of the few countries in the region that has approved uh, gay marriage. And people are flocking, are going to the cinemas to watch kind of, you know, this big blockbuster set in the 80s. You know, I haven't actually seen the film, wasn't released here in the UK, but apparently it's quite a sad story as well, telling how... How, how was your life if you were gay in Taiwan back in the 80s as well? So quite interesting. Good hip-hop, good hip-hop, good blockbusters, and a Shiba Inu in their COVID-19 campaign. I mean, perfect year for them. What's not to love? Well, finally here on this Christmas Day edition of The Late Edition. I'm sure many of us had some goodies in print in our Christmas stockings this year. Paige, like many other sectors, it's been a story of mixed fortunes for print sectors, be it books or magazines this year. Uh, The reports that sales in bookshops during the first lockdown in the UK, for example, rose in many cases. I know that was a similar story, anecdotally speaking, here in Canada as well. And in the UK, a bookselling platform, bookshop.org, was launched a little earlier than scheduled, both to cater to some of that demand, uh, but also to allow independent bookshops to counter the likes of Amazon. To start with you here, we're about to hear a clip from the author of one of your favourite novels that you read this year, so you told us before we came to air. Perhaps you could start by giving us a broad sketch of the book publishing sector this past year. What are the stories that have caught your eye Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of bookshops, um, they showed such agility through this time. Um, In the midst of of the crisis and around April, um, we spoke with Sarah McNally of of McNally Jackson, um, the independent bookstores in New York. Um, And look, the prognosis wasn't great. Um, You know, she was based in New York. They were facing a lot of uh, restrictions or a, a, a real serious case, I suppose, of of coronavirus. Um, but she was really bullish about about getting through it. She was really committed to getting books to people who needed them. Um, She's saying how she was basically spending her whole day in the car back and forth from the post office, making sure orders were getting sent out. A lot of the, the booksellers were doing book recommendations over the phone. Um, and she was saying that the response from her from her customers was so amazing, from people that had been going to the bookshops over the year. They were really willing to to help out and they really wanted to support their their local bookshops and I think you know we've had a similar conversation on on the late edition before about you know this year how people are feeling a lot more connected with their communities and feeling like kind of giving back or that they've had a you know a relationship with it with a, a local shop owner I mean I I live in in Peckham in South London I've had a relationship with the people that run Rye Books a, an independent bookshop there and kind of started up a, a kind of a, a, a real relationship that I hope kind of outlasts the pandemic of book recommendations and, and from the whole house that I, I live with um, which which has been really nice. Well, let's hear a part of the conversation that Britt Bennett had on Monocle on Culture earlier this year. She's the author of The Vanishing Half. Here she is. I thought originally it was just going to be a story of these two sisters. I thought it would be like one half of the book would be one sister, the other half would be the other sister, and that would kind of be that. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I think as you know, you're writing a novel, you become interested in, I mean, at least for me, I become interested in so many of the other characters that populate the world. Twins hold such a special place in a lot of belief systems. Whether some cultures, twins are considered lucky, some cultures, they're considered very unlucky. And that was something that became interesting to me as I was, I was kind of writing towards myth and I think a few different ways in this book. So that was something that I thought about. I think as far as how the twins turned out, I, I just didn't want them to feel, 
you know, two polar opposite where it felt a little cute where, you know, one is this way and one is the complete opposite way of that. I wanted them to feel like these two girls who grow up together who are so inseparably close, but then eventually make these choices that lead them onto their various paths in life. I was interested, I think, in that time period because it was a moment of change in a lot of different ways. Race, you know, gender, sexuality, all of these sort of scripts and expectations were being challenged in ways that are continuing to be felt now. Britt Bennett there, the author of The Vanishing Half, speaking to Robert Bound for Monocle 24 a little earlier this year. Uh, Fernando, to bring you in here and to twist the angle of the print spotlight just a fraction, to look at magazine publishing this year, you host The Stack here on Monocle 24. What's the year, broadly speaking, been like for magazine makers around the world from your vantage point? Well, Thomas, it's undeniable that it's been hard, you know, for many publishers and editors. You know, every single interview, we kind of had to mention COVID and how they've reacted to it. But one interesting thing is, first of all, you know, people were still looking for print. And as Paige was saying, sure, a lot of shops, you know, there was a lot of problems, uh, you know, with, with many shops. But I think the book industry in particular did actually well overall, you know. Uh, even independent bookstores, uh, you know, they, 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 they've changed their format, even if they they didn't sell online before, now they, they do. So there's been a few changes. And talking about creativity, uh, I love, for example, Empire magazine. It's a magazine I buy since I'm a kid. And it's a film magazine. And, you know, usually they have an exclusive interview with the latest Hollywood star and the latest production. But of course, for a few months, there was no productions being filmed. So they had to be creative. So one issue, there was a massive profile, kind of an in-depth look at Gremlins 2, The New Batch, which a film, you know, which I used to love as a kid. And I loved that. And I wonder if they would have that article on normal times where probably there wouldn't be space for it. So it was nice to see this kind of creativity happening. I mean, even here at Monaco 24, as you say, sometimes we had to find stories outside kind of this COVID bubble. And overall, Thomas, new magazines as well. I thought it would be, you know, I thought we wouldn't see new launches this year. But not only here at Monaco with our own confact, but, um, you know, new magazines such as uh, A to Z, that's Deutschland magazine, and, and many others, I have to say. So, uh, you know, I again, uh, always uh, trying to look at the positive side of things. I think print, you know, will survive. It's been, you know, so damaging. So many new shops had to close down. But, you know, we're, we're still here. And, and again, a lot of editors using their creativity. Well, finally, to the two of you, as we draw this Christmas Day edition of the late edition to a close, we've spent the past 20 minutes or so looking back over the past year. So to put you both on the spot briefly, is there a story or an event, pandemic permitting, of course, that's offering each a little ray of light as we look ahead to 2021? Fernando, let's start with you. Well, I, I'm sure you thought I was going to say Eurovision, but well, besides that, I, I am missing the Olympics like crazy, Thomas. It was very much missed uh, this summer, and I know it will happen in Tokyo. Very excited about that. It's, you know, one of the few times where I'm actually interested in sport. I miss seeing those beautiful swimmers swimming, disc throwers, uh, even the opening ceremony, actually, you know. It, 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 it's, it, it's always a highlight for me when there's an Olympics. And Paige, what about you? Might you say Eurovision, therefore, given that Fernando served as a bit of a curveball there for his highlight of 2021? I'm, you know, I, I am looking forward to Eurovision and, and my 
my love for for music is is definitely something that I'm hoping I can bring to a, a live venue of sorts next year. I'm really looking forward just to the return of, of, of music festivals more generally. Um, I was meant to be at Primavera in in Barcelona in in May, I think, which was definitely an absolute no no. And they they at the moment they tentatively do have um, their June festival up and running uh, June 2021. So I would I would love to be back there. I mean. It's such a fantastic festival. It's really just as much about um, enjoying the city. They've got kind of gigs all over in different venues, as well as being at, at the sort of festival venue itself. And, and such an amazing array of artists, um, loads of, of really great Spanish artists as well. Um, so I'm really hoping I can I can make it there, or at least to some some form of, of live music. Well, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Bacheco, that is all we have time for for this special edition of The Late Edition. It's been an absolute treat to spend a little portion of Christmas Day with you both. A very Merry Christmas to the two of you. A big thanks too to Sam Impey, who was our studio manager today. The Late Edition returns very soon. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, here in Toronto, thank you very much for listening and a very Merry Christmas to you. Listener.